Hey Reality Family, welcome once again to our online gathering. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 together, so I encourage you to grab your Bible and find that place, uh, and or turn it on in your phone. And as you, as you do that, I want to make one final invitation to you, uh, if you're watching this on February 21st, Sunday, to join us tonight at 7.30 on Zoom as we start a new church practice called Community Hermeneutic. We're going to be doing this every Sunday night, and if the term community hermeneutic is new to you, no worries. Uh, we invite you to come, and uh, I'll do an introduction to what the idea is and what we're going to be doing together. But in summary, we're just going to be studying the Bible together uh, on these Sunday nights. And we're going to learn to uh, read the Bible together and bring our difficult questions to it. And each series that we go through, hopefully in the future, will bring different questions to the Bible and try to understand what it says. And we're going to try to listen to God through Scripture and discern the, the, what the Holy Spirit is saying. And we're also going to be bringing our, ourselves as well, uh, our stories and our perspectives. That's the community part to this story. So we're going to learn to listen to God through the Scriptures and learn to listen to the Holy Spirit as we learn to listen to one another. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, I uh, invite you to come and join us tonight, 7.30 on Zoom. Okay, our passage for today, Mark 6, starting in verse 30, and I'll read it for us. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore... He saw a large crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, The place is deserted, and it's already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy them something to eat. You give them something to eat, Jesus responded. They said to him, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to sit before the people. He also divided the two fish among them. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up the twelve baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were five thousand men. This is God's Word. If you've been with us, you'll know that we're walking through the Gospel of Mark, looking at it through the lens of king and kingdom. And all the stories that we've looked at so far uh, are stories where Jesus is in and around the area of uh, Galilee, which is his home area. And then next week, we'll see an important shift in the Gospel of Mark as Jesus turns his focus towards Jerusalem. But this is the last week that we're going to look at Jesus in Galilee where he's showing us what it is, uh, what the good news of king and kingdom means. And so we've chosen to put this, uh, this specific episode here at the end of this part of the series for a couple reasons. The first is that it seems to have a role of importance in the Gospels and in the Gospel of Mark. This is the only miracle that's mentioned in all four Gospels, all four accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And even within the Gospel of Mark itself, which is the shortest Gospel, this specific story is referenced two more times. And so the, the Gospel writers are, are trying to signal us and say that something is going on here in this story in Jesus' life that gets to the, the core or heart. Or it's very important uh, to who Jesus is saying that he is. 
as I've studied this passage more and more, I would say that it also is a bit of a summary of many of the different themes uh, that we've seen so far in our study in the Gospel of Mark. So I'm only going to get to one today, really, but I encourage you, maybe in your personal Bible time or in the community group, to ask how the other themes can also be seen in this passage, how it encapsulates them and makes them more explicit. So we're going to look at this passage uh, today through the, the lens of King, specifically. And we're going to uh, see that it makes three statements to us. The first is that we need a king. The second is that we need a king that looks like Jesus. And the third is that Jesus invites us to make him king. So three statements that this passage says. Three, we need a king. We need a king that looks like Jesus. And Jesus invites us to make him the king. So the first statement that we need a king is, is a very simple one but perhaps maybe a, more, a very controversial and difficult one to believe in our culture today. Uh, we don't tend to believe that we need a king. I would say we have an Invictus-style uh, perspective on leadership. Invictus is a poem. Uh, you may not have heard of it, but here's the last stanza. It says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And this last couplet I would say, really um, shows what we think when we think about who should be leading. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So we should be the leaders of ourselves. And in other words, we should be free. And the way we envision that freedom is by uh, be becoming our own captains, is by letting, uh, shrugging off all of the different things that oppress us, all the systems and the people and the kings and the kingdoms of of this world that keep us from not being ourself. Um, this is maybe nowhere better said, uh, more graphically and memorably than by Dennis Diderot. He said this, man will never be free until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. So here we see two things that are stopping us from being free, kings and priests, and they both need to be stopped in memorable and graphic language. And so if this is our cultural moment, it makes it very difficult for us to hear what the Gospel of Mark is saying, that we need a king. And, and we hear that when Jesus comes and says, I'm the king and I'm bringing the kingdom. It sounds very oppressive to us. And it also makes it very difficult for us to learn and relate to the people in this story. I don't know if you noticed it when I read, but the people are sprinting. It says they're running from the towns all over. They see Jesus coming across the lake or they hear that he might be coming. And so they go and they run. They leave everything to meet him on the other side. They head out with their families without lunch into the desert just to get a glimpse of this Jesus and, and hope that he might be their long-awaited king. And the irony of this is that actually if you look back in the story of the Bible and the people of Israel, they've had some really crummy leaders. They've had bad leaders who have abused them and enslaved them and used them for their own personal gain. And they've had leaders who were just okay, but they were broken people. They did some good, they had some great things about them, but they also did some really terrible things that hurt their people. And then they had leaders who were pretty good, but then they ultimately died. And the pattern in the Bible that plays out is often the leader is good, but their kid, not so good. And so Israel have had some really bad leaders. It's not like all of their leaders have been awesome. And yet here they are again, back in the desert, crying out for Jesus to be their leader, to follow him. And we as 21st century people, because we have an Invictus style or mentality of leadership, we want to just, you know, kind of like can't fathom it. And we want to grab these people by their shoulders and shake them and say to them, you know, stop letting these religious leaders abuse you. Stop following them. Stop being sheep. 
Stop hoping in religion. Believe in yourself and free yourself. And so we have two competing visions of what leadership is that make it hard for us to cross and understand this passage. And Jesus' claim, and the Gospel of Mark's claim, and even the entire Bible's claim that we need a king over us. Now, over Christmas, I read a really uh, interesting book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And the author, the author asked, asked this very question in front of us. How do we get from a place, um, Matthew 6, where people have put their hope in Jesus to be a king, they longed for a king and they wanted that, to today, where a poem like Invictus is an anthem for our age. And he would even say, as, as early as 500 years ago, in the, in the 1500s, we have this idea that, that we need people, we need leadership over us. So it's actually a fairly recent phenomenon that has changed. How do we go from being citizens in a kingdom to having life revolve around the kingdom of self? And the author, Carl Truman, is a, is a philosopher and historian. And he says the way that we've gone from here to here, to being citizens in a kingdom, to trying to be the kings ourselves, is that we've been guided. We've actually been led by different voices and different thought leaders through history to get us where we are today. And his book is a genealogy of these people, of these kings and queens, people who have given decrees that form our understanding of what it means to be human, that it means to be free, and that it means to be the captains of our own soul. Let me give you some example of some of these voices from the book. Truman would say that if you think society and organizations corrupt individuals, then you're actually following Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He's a king in your life. If you believe that religion is bondage to a time of superstition, then you're an intellectual child of Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche. They are people who have guided you from here to here. If you think of your identity primarily in terms of sexuality, I am straight, I am bi, I am gay, then you are, are a child, you are being led by Sigmund Freud. If you are a feminist or, or tend to think of the world in feminist categories, then your queen is Simone de Beauvoir. Now you may have never heard of any of these people, you may have never heard their names, you may have never read their books, in fact you may despise them if you know who they are. Uh, for example, Freud, none of his theories are scientifically true, they've all been disproven. But the point is that all of them have guided us, they've done the work of kings by shaping our world from a place where we can understand what the people are doing to a place where what they're doing makes absolutely no sense. And I might say, they're the, the people who have guided us, this genealogy of kings from this book, they, they, they have so much influence over us that we don't even question it. And we just assume that the way that they describe the world is the way that it is. It's this Invictus-style world that we would be the masters of our own fate. It's just obvious. That's how wrapped up we are in their kingdom and them as kings for us. Now, the point of whether, of whether any of these people are good, are good or bad is a whole other question. I'd love to get a coffee and chat with you about that. But the point of what I'm trying to say here is that we aren't the captains of our own ship. That's what the Bible says. That's what Truman is saying. And I think that's what our history says. Rather, what we're doing is we're rearranging deck chairs on a massive cruise ship that's being driven by other people. So all of us are led by someone, whether we like it or not. We all have kings and queens in our lives and kingdoms that we're a part of. The question is just who are these kings and queens and are, where are they leading us? Are they good captains of our ship? And this is where the Bible would come in and the Gospel of Mark specifically introduces Jesus to us as the rightful captain of the ship. As someone who has, he is a king and he brings a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven and earth. And one of the earliest 
affirmations of the church or the way of summarizing what it means to follow Jesus is through three simple words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Um, we saw this last summer when we looked at Philippians 2, one of, maybe one of the earliest songs we have recorded from the church. It says that, So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the Gospel of Mark puts that out for us as the answer to who should be the king. And again, this is a very simple thing to say, that Jesus is Lord, but it's a very difficult thing to actually practically believe is true and, and to orient ourselves around. Um, you know, we may have a Jesus is Lord tattoo. We may agree, if we have a multiple choice exam, that Jesus is the Lord of the world. You may even hypothetically release an, a best-selling album called Jesus is Lord. It doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is the real Lord of our lives, that he is the one driving our ships. And so let's take a look at this passage more closely to see how it's trying to persuade us that Jesus should be the king and how we're invited into his kingdom. And so the first reason that it puts forward for Jesus being king is that the task is too big for any other king. The task of world leadership is too big for any other king. I don't know if you caught it, but the last verse of this passage says that there were 5,000 men present for this uh, miracle of Jesus. Now, you may have heard of mansplaining. This is man numbering, where they only count the number of men. Uh, so scholars would say there's probably between 10 and 15,000 people present for this miracle of Jesus. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of needs. Now, I want to ask you the question, when we, when we think of this passage, what is the greatest need uh, that's, that these people have? And the simple answer is food. That's what the disciples think. These people are going to be hungry. That's what's mentioned in the passage, and that's the miracle that Jesus does. He provides food for them. But we need to look at the whole context of what's going on here to see the full picture of the needs that these people have. They need leadership. That's what Jesus says about them. They, he sees them, he has compassion on them because they're sheep without a shepherd. They're looking for a leader. And then the next thing that Jesus does is he gives them teaching. He starts to teach them. They need a reorientation of their story. Someone to help them make sense of where they are in the world and, and who, uh, who is a leader of the world. There are also people who are starved for hope. Remember that these people have run from their towns, they've left everything and run out into the desert with their families without lunch or dinner. And commentators would say that by following Jesus out into this wilderness area, what they're thinking they're doing is actually forming a militia, that they're going to form a militia together with Jesus as their king, and they're going to come back and overthrow Rome. These are people who are hungry for a revolution. So they're starved for leadership, for teaching, for food, and they're starved for hope. And when we look at it this way, the problem is actually a lot bigger than it looks at first glance. These are real people with real hopes and dreams and families, and they, they all come with a massive story that they're bringing uh, into this miracle. And our world is exactly the same. It's a complex world with complex people with complex problems. As many of you know, uh, our family has lived on the edge of the downtown east side for 11 years. Um, and currently we live about two blocks away from Strathcona Park where many people are encamped. And I like to ask different people um, who live and work in the neighborhood, you know, what should we do about this situation? What would be helpful, most helpful to the people um, that are, uh, you know, finding themselves in these encampments? And I get all sorts of answers, and I'm sure you've heard some of these. You know, we should have clean injection sites or the decriminalization of drugs, better housing initiatives for them. 
Better community workers. My neighbor told me this this weekend when we were chatting. He works for Portland Housing Society. He said, if we could just have better workers in these homes to connect people to the um, resources that they need. Or better enforcement of law. That's currently a hot topic in, in my neighborhood. Or we just need more compassion. We need to see these people not as, uh, you know, other than us, but we need to see that we're addicts and they're addicts too. Reimagine addiction as Gabor Matze might have us do. Or we need to release the land back to the First Nations people. That's the biggest problem underpinning everything. Now here's the question. Why are there so many answers to this problem, to the same question? It's because it's complex. It's a complex issue. And these people are all bringing their perspectives to answer the question. And what I would say, although each of these people are, are wise and have their own reasons for believing these things, is what I've come to believe is that actually what we need is not a miracle. We don't need, specifically, if we do any of these things, if we have, for example, just clean injection sites, we put all of our time and money and energy towards that, it's not going to fix the problem. Because we don't need a, simply a miracle. It's too complex. And that's why when we come to this story, where Jesus is giving the bread to people, we miss the point if we focus on the miracle that Jesus is doing. We like to think of the miracles that Jesus is doing as the high point in his ministry. And we think, we, we import to that to today. We think, oh, if Jesus just showed up on the downtown east side, you know, he'd provide bread for everyone, and then everyone would, would know that he exists, and they'd believe in him, and things would really turn around. But the gospel doesn't seem to share that, those same assumptions. They don't think of the miracles of Jesus in this way. In the Gospel of John, if you remember back to last year, it never calls what Jesus does miracles. It calls them signs. Signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom and that Jesus is who he says he is. And in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus often tells people after doing a miracle, hey, don't go tell anyone about this miracle, which seems weird to us. But it's because he's saying to them, hey, what I did in this specific moment is attached to a much bigger story about me as the king and the kingdom that I'm bringing in the world. And you only see a snippet of it. Because these miracles won't ultimately solve the big problems in our world or in theirs. These people that Jesus provided the bread for will be hungry again by tomorrow. Last week, Kingsley led us to look at this woman who had been bleeding for many years. Jesus heals her. And then a girl who had died and Jesus resurrects her. But I hate to be the one to burst the bubble, but those people eventually both died. Like, I'm pretty sure they're not around today anymore. Jesus did an amazing miracle in their lives, but it wasn't enough. And one of the things that this passage is trying to force us to see is that our greatest need for our complex problems in the world is not actually a miracle, but recreation. Jesus is about something bigger than a one-time miracle. He is about the rest restoration on earth of the kingdom of God. It's a bigger picture. He's recreating shalom. He wants to recreate our relationships with God, with ourselves, with other people, and with the world. That's what he's doing in this passage. And there's all these little snippets of it. They're in the wilderness. But God it leads them to a green space. This is echoes of the Exodus narrative and also of the Garden of Eden that's set amidst the tohu wabohu, the wild and waste of the world. God is, or Jesus organizes the people in and around him. This is Genesis 1 language where he's bringing order out of chaos. He's creating a space for shalom. And it, and it uh, also references the story of the people in the Exodus as they organize themselves around the temple. Jesus is doing all these things. He is bigger than a miracle. He's actually recreating 
the whole world. And that's why we need Jesus. Because our problems are too big and too complex for us to just attack them with a one-size solution. And if we do that, we'll just continually be playing leadership whack-a-mole where we'll think we'll solve the problem and then it just pops up over here. This passage is trying to say to us that we actually need a king who can take the complex problems of our world and pull them up at the root. Jesus, and, and it presents Jesus as the only one who can do that. Can he do miracles? Absolutely. But his king and kingdom is actually about something much bigger. It's about recreating each one of us, bringing his kingdom here on earth. So that's the first thing that we need. The, the problem is too big to have any other king lead us. Okay, the second thing. The, making, the second reason why Jesus is the king that we need, because making human kings brings out the worst in us. Making human kings brings out the worst in us. Now, we may miss this because we didn't read the passage just before the feeding of the 5,000. And it's about a guy named Herod. Now, Herod is a king. He's the king at the time. And a little bit of backstory here. He had just imprisoned a guy named John the Baptist uh, because John was speaking out against Herod. Herod had married his sister-in-law, who, which is already gross, but then her name is Herodias. His name's Herod Herodias. It's like kind of double, it's just it's kind of weird, all weird. And John criticizes this marriage, and so Herod puts him in jail. Okay, so that's the setup for this story that just precedes it. So let's pick it up in verse 21. An opportune time came on his birthday, on Herod's birthday. So why are the people gathering? In Jesus' story, they're gathering because they long for leadership, because they're hungry, they're sheep without a shepherd. Who, why are they gathering in Herod's story? Because it's his birthday. They're there to celebrate him. And he gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Who comes to this party? Is it people who are broken, who are in need of leadership, who are hungry? No, it's the best and the greatest. It's people that's going to reflect well on Herod. Now, when Herodias, this is uh, Herod's sister-in-law that he married, Herodias, when, oh, sorry, when, um, I lost my place. Okay, Herodias' own daughter came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guests. A lot of commentators say that there's some um, kind of like weird sexual stuff going, some sexual tension here going on between Herod and his daughter-in-law slash niece-in-law. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Herod is just flexing here in front of everybody. I have so much, I can give away half my kingdom to this little girl. It won't even bother me. So the little girl, Herodias' daughter, went out and asked her mother, Herodias, what should I ask for? And remember, John the Baptist has been criticizing Herodias. So Herodias says, John the Baptist's head. At once, the girl hurried into the king, King Herod, and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. She's escalating it here, bringing more uh, macabre to the story. Although the king, King Herod, was deeply disturbed because of the oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. He's insecure, can't admit that he's made a mistake. And so the king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and then the girl gave it to her mother. And Jesus' gathering of people and feeding ends up with him giving of himself, providing a miracle so that the people can eat. Herod's ends up in focused on himself and in a death. And so in this passage, we see the worst of human leadership, indulgence, self-centeredness, politicking, abuses of power. 
And the passage is trying to use Herod as an example. It's saying that this, this is what happens when we give this cosmic kingdom and the keys to the cosmic kingdom in our lives to human people. It brings out the worst in us. And we might want to say at this point, see, this is why we shouldn't give people too much leadership. And we might say, Diderot is right. We need to get rid of kings and priests. But remember, we are going to give leadership to somebody. That is the human predicament. We follow. We need kings. And so some of us might say, well, you know, Herod is just an extreme example. Um, most of us aren't that bad. And I would agree, like, he is an extreme example, and I assume that most of us would never dream of doing the things that Herod does. And yet, I, I want to pause and give some reflection on that, because if we look at the history of the world, the Herods of the world are not isolated cases. They're, the world history is leader, littered sorry, with bad leadership. And religion is not exempt to these terrible leaders. As we said, the story of Israel has them, and unfortunately we have some very current examples that I can bring up of people who have abused their leadership and lack character. And we tend to look at these people as abnormalities or anomalies. But I also think there are reflections of us. There's a great saying that we always get the leadership that we deserve that is a reflection of who we are. About 20 years ago, there was a, a, a really interesting great book that came out called Freakonomics. Um, it was the application of behavioral economics to life. Uh, it was written by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. And uh, the subtitle said it explores the hidden side of everything. And it had this beautiful cover of an apple, but inside the apple was an orange. Underneath the things that we think might be something totally different. So they released Freakonomics and there is a... Uh, a, a documentary on Netflix you can watch that's really interesting. I encourage you to read the book. There's a podcast. Uh, it's become a whole phenomenon. They released a second book called Think Like a Freak. Uh, same, same idea. And they had one chapter that was called What's Your Problem? Where they dug into this. What's the problem of people? And what's maybe we look at it like an apple. What's actually on the inside? I want you to listen from this paragraph of this paragraph from their book. If asked how we behave in a situation that pits private benefit against greater good, most of us won't admit to favoring the private benefit. Most of us won't admit to being selfish. But as history clearly shows, and as their book will clearly show from experiments and from science and behavioral economics, most people, whether because of nature or nurture, generally put their own interests ahead of others. Inside the apple, we like to think of ourselves as good. But inside the apple, we actually are, are selfish. And then they close with this statement I thought was amazing. This doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them human. There's something about us, the human condition, that when given the opportunity, is selfish. And maybe none of us would want to admit or hope that we'd become a Herod. But also maybe we just haven't had the opportunity to do some of the same things. So what's our problem, they would say? We think we're altruistic. That's the apple on the outside. But inside, we're actually selfish. When push comes to shove, when we look at history, when we look at behavioral economics, and when we read the Bible, we see that there's something selfish at the core of who we are. And so the Bible brings, and the story brings Jesus into that moment as a solution. Herod's leadership is contrasted with Jesus. Herod has the title of king, but he's a completely insecure individual. He's scared of what other people will think of him, and he can't take any criticism. Jesus comes on the scene without any titles. He's often misunderstood. 
that he's completely secure as the king of the world because of his relationship with God. Herod looks at people to be used, therefore, as his playthings, to use for his wants and his entertainment. But Jesus, when he sees people, he looks at their needs because he's secure. He's able to be compassionate and have empathy for them. You know, this, this word compassionate, it says to be moved in your bowels. And maybe this is just me because I've had two bowel surgeries in the last year. I'm just very attentive to what it means to have your bowels be moved around uh, outside of your control and desires. It's, it's uh, excruciating. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's moved at the depths of his being for these people because they're sheep without a shepherd. Whereas Herod's leadership ends up with John the Baptist's head on a plate. You know, Herod makes people dance for their dinner, for his entertainment, and to come get something from the king. Jesus, on the other hand, is completely self-giving in this story. He gives his time. He gives his compassion. He gives his teaching, although he's tired. He gives away his dinner, and eventually we'll see that he gives away even his life for the people. And by comparing these two, the Gospel of Mark is trying to give us a choice. It's saying, hey, we have a choice here. We don't have a choice that we're going to have a king over us, but we have a choice who we choose. Are you going to choose human kings who will be selfish human beings and use you for their own pleasure when given the opportunity? Or are we going to take Jesus' hand, the compassionate king who in just a few chapters will say to us that he came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life away in exchange for all of us who are held hostage? Who will you choose? And so, making human kings brings out the worst of us, but we have a choice. We have a choice to choose the compassionate king, Jesus. Okay, last one, last one. So, the third uh, thing that we see, or the third reason to choose Jesus as king, is that our best is not good enough for us to be king. So, we see in Herod that human kings brings out the worst in us, but even the best in us is not good enough to be kings. And for this, we look to the disciples as our example. The disciples aren't like Herod. They're Jesus' hand-picked messengers in this story. Let's look, just before the story of Herod, let's look at the commissioning of the twelve, starting in verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7. It says, Jesus summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. All the things that Jesus has done, we're now going to see the disciples do. He gives them his authority. Verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they drove, the men, drove out demons anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. The things that Jesus was doing, the power of Jesus is now available in these disciples. They're his hand-picked messengers doing Jesus' work. And I don't know about you, but I haven't done any of these things recently, healed sick people or cast out any demons. So these disciples are special, and they're doing God's work. They're also prepared. The disciples bring their own lunch. They're not ill-prepared people. It's not like they showed out without uh, demanding anything of anyone else. They took care of themselves. They brought enough food for Jesus and themselves. Five loaves, two fishes. The disciples are also really good leaders. You know, they ask Jesus. Um, one, of the, one of the discipleship uh, mantras I've heard before is that good leaders look two or three steps down the road further than everyone else. And that's what the disciples are doing in this passage. They come to Jesus and they say, you know, it's getting dark out and these people are going to get hungry. We don't want like a riot on our hands and we want them to be, you know, we don't want them to go hungry. Um, we should send them to go get some food. They're concerned. They share Jesus' compassion for the people. So they're, they're not dummies. They're really good leaders. They're handpicked by Jesus and they're prepared. And Jesus uh, invites them to the next level of leadership. In verse 37, he says, okay, so you give them something to eat. And this is where we see their limitations. Because they're flabbergasted. 
They say like, well, we can't give them anything to eat. What are we supposed to do? Go take, take out a loan in order to get these people enough food? And this is what Jesus is saying. When the rubber meets the road of the needs of these people, what the disciples have, even though they're great, is not enough. They're people who get tired. They're tired upon return of their missionary journey. Their lunch, which is enough for themselves, is not enough for everybody else. And their imaginations are too small for what God can do in the world. Another way of saying this is they're great leaders, but they are just human beings. They're people and not God. And the Bible wants to say, by God's grace, not every leader in the world is a Herod. We have great leaders, but as mere human beings, our best is not enough to meet the needs of the world. And again, I want to pause and make, maybe, you know, you're, you might not be thinking, I want to lead the world. But the best, our best is not even enough for the jobs that God has given us to do. To be a pastor, to be a good wife or husband, son or daughter, mother or father, to be a good friend, to be a good parent. At the end of the day, we're all just people. We all have limitations. And this passage asks us to reimagine ourselves as people who are chosen by God, who have something to give and a really important place to play alongside the king of the world. But it also asks us to see the other side of that too, that we are part of the crowd. We are hungry people. We're tired people. We're unprepared. And we're sheep without a shepherd, as Jesus says, in need of his teaching, in need of his compassion, and in need of his leadership. That's who each human being is, both of these things together. And this is why Jesus as king is presented as good news. It's because at our best, we don't have enough to give ourselves, to give the people around us, and to give the world. What we need ultimately is a solution from the outside. Because at our best, we're still just people. And so what we need is not simply a woman or a man, but the son of man. Someone who is not stuck in the human predicament, but someone who can both enter and transcend it. We don't just need another king, another King Herod, or one of these disciples to become the king. What we need is the Messiah. We need this long-awaited promised liberator from God who can ransom us and bring true freedom to our lives. We don't just need good advice or a better plan for tomorrow, but what we need is, as Mark 1 says, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that is why Jesus is the good, the king that we need, according to the Gospel of Mark in this passage. In closing, I want to give three invitations from King Jesus. If we need a king, and if King Jesus is that king, how can we enter in with him? What does it look like to follow him and to accept his invitation for him to be the king and bring the kingdom into our lives and our world? So in closing, just three quick things. The first is that we have to organize ourselves around King Jesus. The, we've seen so far the Gospel of Mark talk about this in many ways. Repent, it says. that We are walking this way. To follow Jesus means to turn and walk towards him. To believe or to have faith. To recalibrate and have allegiance of our lives. To follow him even though we don't have all the answers. And here it paints a, a different picture but the same idea. That we have Jesus in the center of our lives and we reorganize ourselves in and around him. Um, again, this is, echoes back to uh, Genesis 1, the first story in the Bible. God wants to bring order out of chaos and reorient our lives around him. And to the Exodus story. 
And that's the same thing that's happening in this passage. Jesus asks the people to sit in and around him as he provides them food. And it's the same thing he longs to do for each one of us. To reorient our lives around him. To take our schedules, to take our bank accounts, to take our hopes and our dreams and put Jesus right in the center and say, I'm going to organize all of those things. Recalibrate my life around you. And maybe for you it's the first time that you're considering doing that. And that's awesome. If you have questions, we'd love to chat with you more, as would many other people here. Or maybe it's the 10,000th time. And like I said, you would say Jesus is Lord, but if you look at your life, it's not oriented around here, around him. And this passage is an invitation to sit at his feet, to receive from him as the king of the world, and to reorient ourselves around his king, kingness and his kingdom. The second thing is that I want us to see and how we accept the invitation of God for him to be king and bring the kingdom is that he actually wants to partner with us. Look in this passage to how often Jesus does something versus how often he encourages to do things through or he he does things through the disciples. He sends the disciples out. In verse 37, he encourages them, you give them something to eat. In verse 38, when they're saying how much, uh, they say how much bread they need, he says, how much bread do you have? And then when he does the miracle of turning these five loaves into enough for 15,000 people, Jesus doesn't go and distribute it himself. He gives it to the disciples to go and bring to the people. And that's the same level of partnership that he wants with us. The the God of the world doesn't want to just come, and Jesus doesn't come to the world and just do a bunch of miracles. He actually longs to work through us. For us to continue the work that he started in the Gospel of Mark and with the disciples, he wants to partner with us to be his body in the world, to be his hands and his feet to work together with him at all the things we've seen him doing in the Gospel of Mark, preaching the Gospel, walking alongside people who are broken, casting out demons, having compassion, and feeding hungry people. This is what it means to follow God, for him to be the king and to bring the kingdom in our lives. They're not separate things. He longs to partner with us in bringing these things into the world. And finally, the last invitation is not to be limited to the size of our imaginations and abilities but rather to expand our imaginations to the size of his kingdom. Not to be limited to the size of our imaginations and abilities, but rather to expand our imaginations to the size of his kingdom. As I've personally reflected on this passage this week, this is the thing that's been hitting me the most. You know, I, 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 I've thought in this last world a lot, about the, or this last uh, year a lot, about the limitations of my own health. And then, of course, pastoring through the restrictions. I keep focusing on the things that stop us from meeting together, stop us from being the church, stop us from doing discipleship, stop us from gathering. And this passage asks me and asks each of us to not look at the the restrictions that we have or the limits of what we think we can do and our abilities in them, but actually to expand our imaginations to take on the power of Jesus and to make him our king. What if we looked at these restrictions instead what if I stop looking at them as something that stops me from doing my job, but rather um, something that doesn't stop the kingdom of God? Something that maybe stops our Sunday gathering, but doesn't stop the work of the church? What if the kingdom of God is not stopped by the pandemic? You know, I long to meet back together with people, but if that's our focus, just to, to wait it out until we can get back together, we're limiting the kingdom to our past patterns and to a room on a Sunday morning. The kingdom of God is much bigger than that. Just like Jesus explodes the categories of what's possible for the disciples and for these people. He wants to do the same with us. What might that look like in your life? 
What if all the limitations on your current movement and your life are not actually fences for your imagination, but just the boundaries for the playground of the Holy Spirit? Remember, He's not about a miracle. He's about recreation, a recreating of each one of us and a recreation of the entire world. What if we took all of our limitations, what we have to give, and even our current restrictions, not as something to stop us, but something to see the power of God expand our imaginations in the world? Would you close with me in prayer? God, we thank you for this amazing passage. And um, yeah, we pray that for each of us, you would teach us that we do, we are people. What it means to be human is that we have a king over us. And, and I, as this passage says, and as the whole Bible says, you are that rightful king. So I know that is very difficult for us to hear and even more hard for us to actually institute in our lives. I pray that you would make that a reality for each of us today. And I, I thank you for these three invitations. Would you press them in on our hearts and on our minds and make the applications for us in the places that we need. Holy Spirit, we invite your work in each of us, in each of our families, in each of our lives, in our church. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified, that we would learn to partner with you and reorient ourselves around you and stop being limited by what we think is possible, but rather open ourselves up to the work of the kingdom and you as the king. So as we respond, drill these things into our hearts and our minds. We pray them together in the name of God.